got a Bible, would you turn uh, to the book of John, John 17. So if you don't have a, a Bible, there should be one on a row near you, or if uh, you're looking at a uh, Bible on your phone, we read from the English Standard Version. We are John 17 is where we find ourselves. John 17, the entire chapter is a prayer, and we're going to spend the next several weeks just looking at this prayer because as a church... We're making our emphasis for 2020 that God would answer this prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus said should be the prayer of his people. God, make us a house of prayer for all peoples. And so as we are aiming to be a people who are characterized by prayer and characterized by a diversity of people gathering in unity, calling out to him, um, we are going to hone in on Jesus's prayer in John 17. Now, John 17 is kind of the transition point because Jesus gave kind of his final teaching to his followers, John 13 through John 16. It's called his farewell discourse, all of these teachings right before he was about to die. And so John 13 to 16 preceded this chapter, and now we see Jesus praying as he's getting ready to walk the Calvary road to die a sinner's death and rise again from the dead. So John 17, uh, last week, we went at a brilliantly fast pace and looked at two verses. So we looked at verses 1 and 2. Today we're going to look at verses 3, 4, and 5. But I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, although the focus is going to be verses 3 to 5. I'm going to read the scriptures here and then pray. The Word of God says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come glorify your son. Would you say that with me, those three words? Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And let's read these next four words together. And this, five words, sorry. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, in you there is no beginning and no end. In you, there is steadfast love and mercy. You are Father. You are King. You are over all things. And I just pray that in this moment, You would cause us to know You and want to know You. I ask that we would want to know You as Father and want to love and to know the Son and be filled by your Holy Spirit's presence to enjoy and abide in your love and give your love away. Father, do what only you can do. Glorify yourself in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, do you know them? You can say, yes, I know them, but you can mean Tons of things. So, hey, do you know them? 
Yes, I know their name. Maybe you know whether they're married or single. Maybe you know what type of job they have. Maybe you've invited them to be your friends on some type of social media, and you know them in that way. And so you said yes, but there's other levels of knowing, right? So if I say, hey, do you know them? And you say yes, then maybe you mean, yeah, I worked with them. We worked on a project together. We sat and had lunch together. We had good conversations together. I know them. And that's a different level altogether. Or if you say, hey, do you know them? And you say, yes. You could say, yeah, I know them. That was my college roommate. I know them. They were in my wedding. We laughed together. We cried together. We've gone on a trip together. I've kind of lost touch with them in the past six months to a year. But yeah, I know them. Or you could say, hey, do you know them? And you say, yes, that's my wife, or that's my husband, or that's my brother. Or You can like, yes, we know everything about each other. We share our lives together. We pray for each other. All of those reflect, yes, you know them, but there's so many different levels of knowledge, all in that one word. And as we look at this passage, Jesus is found saying that this is eternal life, that you know God. And what's so beautiful is just as that illustration kind of shows the multiple layers, so it is with God. But where the baseline is, is you don't just know about Him, you know Him intimately. You love Him. He is your singular aim. He is the the meaning of your life. He has made you a new creation and your desires are for Him. It is for Him that you live. And then we get the joy of spending the rest of our life and the rest of eternity Knowing Him, deepening our intimacy with Him and our knowledge of Him. Just as we sung, be thou my vision. God, be my vision. Be everything to me. These are the words that reflect the fruit of eternal life. And so the main point of this is summarized in a prayer. This prayer is the point of this passage this sermon and it is oh god eternal life is to know you deepen my love for you oh god eternal life is about you it's to know you deepen my love for you and i think there's four things in this passage that might be kind of supports or pillars might even be fruits that grow out of that prayer I'll just state them this way. Four things. One is prayer. The second is eternal life. The third is knowing the Father. The fourth is knowing the Son. Prayer, eternal life, knowing the Father, knowing the Son. What you'll see is these points come directly out of this passage. And let's just look, first of all, at prayer. Prayer. I said last week in the sermon that I preached that we're not just looking at John 17 
to know what Jesus prayed, i.e. the content of his prayer. We're looking at John 17 to see that Jesus prayed. Jesus was a praying man. And this should seep out onto us that if Jesus needed to pray, prayer should be characterizing the people of God just as it characterizes our Savior. And so as we look at prayer, that's why I stated the main point as a prayer. Oh God, eternal life is to know you. Deepen my love for you. Because it's not just about certain facts. It's about a relationship with God. And as we talked about last week, prayer is first this. Prayer is accepting the invitation to sit with Jesus and abide in His love. Prayer is an invitation by Almighty God to experience with Him His love for you. And it's accepting that invitation. When you stop all that you're doing and you say, Oh God, I need you. When you're driving down the road, God, I need you. It is accepting that invitation to abide in the love of God. And we know that that's what Jesus is doing here. He is abiding in His Father's love. But for us, there are some barriers to our sitting at the feet of Jesus. One is planning. You wake up, sleep is in your eye, you didn't get enough of it, you wish you had more of it, and yet you want to read God's Word. And if you don't have a plan, that is a recipe for everything stopping. Just wake up and go like this, and it says, you know, and Jesus went, or Judas went and hung himself, and you're just like, that's not very inspiring right now, and how is this supposed to help? And so you just close it and run. You know, it's just like, I need... The lack of a plan, what you will read, working through a book of the Bible or working through the entire Bible or working through the New Testament or something like this, allowing God's Word to speak to you on His terms, not just yours, that kind of plan is helpful. I seek to have a plan in the morning and then every night I try to read one psalm in the evening before I go to bed. Do I do that every week or every day? No. Do I fail? Yes. Is that the plan? Yes, it is. Do I have a where? Do I have a when? Yes, that's the plan. We need a plan. But sometimes it's not just the plan that's the problem. Sometimes the problem is the battle of the moment. Here's what my battle looks like. I wake up, I get my cup of coffee, and I sit down, and will I check the news before I open my Bible. Will I check the sports scores to see if the teams I love did well the night before? Will I check my email to just see if anybody emailed me at 3 a.m.? Those are my issues. Because when I, this is my weakness, when I go to those first, the 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes that I might have set aside to be with Jesus, all of a sudden turns into like one and a half. Where'd the time go? And then you feel this massive sense of, man, whether it's guilt, whether it's frustration, sadness, whatever it is. 
For you, it could be social media. For you, it could be what does it look like to do it at a time that's less interrupted. I don't know your battle. I'm not putting my battle on you. But I promise you this, there will always be times when you want to do something else. And you need to set those kind of boundaries to say no to that and yes to Him. It's not legalism to set boundaries. Because I'm not leaning on that for my salvation. I'm setting those up so that I press into Jesus, which is my only hope. It's accepting His invitation to sit and abide in His love. Don't let anything distract you from accepting that invitation to be with a God who loves you. But as you saw Jesus praying, he not only accepted that invitation, but he, we, he demonstrated that prayer is pleading for what you cannot do. It's pleading for what you cannot do. Now, we have to be careful here, but Jesus, fully God, he comes in the incarnation and he intentionally limits himself. He doesn't diffuse himself of his godness, but there is intentional limitations Philippians chapter 2, he empties himself so that he's in one place at one time. He weeps. He cries. He has weakness. He gets hungry. He's tempted. This is Jesus. And so what he's found doing here is asking the Father to do what only the Father can do, and that is to fulfill his plan through Jesus. Jesus prays, Father, glorify me. By fulfilling this plan through me. He needed the Father to do that work in his life. We have to be honest that our prayer exponentially more. Prayer is a declaration that we cannot do things in our lives. But it's not only pleading for what we cannot do, but prayer is also agreeing with God. Prayer is also agreeing with God what he says about himself, what he says about us, what he says about the world is true and best. I'll say it again. Prayer is agreeing with God that what he says about himself and about us and about the world is true and best. Do you not find it a little odd? Look at verse 3. He's praying to the Father. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, this is eternal life. Do you really think the Father didn't know this until Jesus told him? Is that what's happening here? Is Jesus letting the Father in on something because God didn't know what was going on? No. Say no. That's right. No, God knows all things. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is yet to come. Then why is Jesus praying this? He's praying this because He is agreeing with the Father, that all that the Father says is true and best. And so when you stop and you pray, and you say, God, I am anxious. This thing is making me crazy anxious, and I don't know what to do with it. Are you letting him into a secret that he didn't know before you said that? No. He knows. He knows what you need. He knows your heart. You're not letting him in on new information. Prayer. God is not learning about your heart while you pray. You are learning about his. 
God is not learning about your heart while you pray. You are learning about His. You are experiencing His love. You are receiving His forgiveness. You are saying His word is true. His view of the world is the view of the world. His way is best and good. And you will only experience transformative healing and power through confession and through taking your burdens to Him. This is prayer. You're not informing Him of what He does not know. He's not learning about your heart. You're learning about His. This is prayer. And so, every one of these points will have a prayer to take away. And as we look at prayer, the prayer is about prayer. Did you follow that? The prayer about prayer is this. Father, stop me from being too busy for you. Father, stir me to accept the invitation to sit at your feet, to follow Jesus' example, and to abide in your love. Father, make me a person of prayer. And so, we move on. In this main point, O God, eternal life is to know you. Deepen my love for you. Our love for him will be deepened as we stop and sit with him in prayer. But also, what we have is not the fact only that he prayed, but what he prayed. And the rest of the sermon has to do with the content of his prayer, verses 3, 5, and, or verses 3, 4, and 5. The content of what he prayed is summarized in verse 3. He says this, and this is eternal life, point one, that they know you, know the Father, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ. So those are our last three points. Eternal life. Know the Father, know the Son. The first one. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. What is eternal life? Just say those two words with me. Eternal life. Eternal life. Now, if you've been in the church, those words, you can just say those words like you would a, a conjunction. It's just like and or an article. A, the. You know, eternal life. You just, you just, it's just old hat. It's just what you say. But just let it sit a second. Eternal. And life. Forever. Never fading. Never diminishing. Life. Fullness. Peace. Joy. Ever increasing. Forever and ever. In the presence of Almighty God. Eternal life. That is the Christian's hope, and that hope will not put you to shame. Won't be put to shame. That's a, that's a sure hope, eternal life. But all of humanity, whether Christian or not, longs for kind of forever life, right? Growing up for me, it was the phrase, the fountain of youth. You've heard of the search for the fountain of youth. What is this fountain? It doesn't exist. It's, it's a fountain that... Maybe if you drink of it, you would live forever. What this has turned into is humanity's craving to live forever, but for most people, it means to live forever right here on this earth. To live forever right here on this earth. And I'm sorry, I don't want that. As is, I don't want it. I've lived long enough 
And if you live long enough, you will see enough brokenness, enough sickness, enough war, enough accidents, enough interaction between people that dissolves into crisis. You experience that just like, there's got to be something better. But the world just says, just give me life longer now. And I'm so thankful for the investments of dollars into ethical means of stopping cancer and stopping Alzheimer's and, and working against all kinds of disease and a lot of the injustices around the world and trying to provide clean water. I'm so thankful for all of the ethical means of doing that. But at the end of the day, there's one fact remains. Every one of us will die. I know that might seem gloomy, but it is a fact. Whether you live to be 50 or whether you live to be 120, you'll still die. Because the wages of sin is what? And the gift of God is eternal life. There's got to be an alternative to death. But most people would say, no, I want this world without the car accidents without the sickness, without the natural disasters, without the wars, and that's when you begin to say, now heaven is coming down to earth. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. But I'm sorry, what most people want is they want all of that without God. And they believe the lie that humanity can create that utopia if they just have enough time. What year is it? 2020. How we doing? Not well. Not well. And we will never stop. We will never stop all the poverty and all the wars and all the natural disasters because when humanity is involved, things get broken. Because humanity is broken. We do a lot of neat things. But at our core, we're sinful. And there's only one person that can fix the human heart. And his name is Jesus. Eternal life. Eternal life is what is held out for us. And I tell you, I was walking through Coles last night. And as I was walking through Coles, I'm walking and a little bit overwhelmed. Not like anxious overwhelmed, but just like, Good night, all of the messages coming at me at once. You need this, you need this, you know, and you're just walking and it's like, no, you need this. I can't tell you how many men's shirts were there. Good night, I need them all, really? And there's the dress category and there's the active category. And then that applies to all ages. And then you go to the back of the store and it's all home goods, right? Because you need that too. Let alone the fact that that's one store among a lot of stores. On top of that, you'll sit and watch TV, and unless you've paid a lot of money to get commercial free, commercials are going to pop in. And as the commercials pop in, they're going to tell you one thing. You need this. You need this to have full life. You need this to feel satisfied. We are being indoctrinated with that false gospel. That pursuing things that we can touch or wear or relationships or job or money that they're going to satisfy. Jesus is saying this world is broken. This life, although 
can be fuller than it is with him, it's not what we were created for. We need eternal life with him. Eternal life. And so, as we go forward, we don't want to give in to ourselves pursuing a mirage. And I remember, I'm not going to show the video clip, but I remember watching cartoons growing up. I loved Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck, there's this one where he is parched and thirsty. And he sees in the distance this ice sculpture in the middle of the desert. And he goes and dives in and it's just sand. Then he runs after it again and it's a palm tree and he knocks himself out. This is the endless pursuit of trying to find satisfaction of our souls in the things of this world. It's a mirage. It won't deliver. It'll knock you out if you put your hope there. And so he goes on to say eternal life is in knowing the Father. It's in knowing the Son. But here's our prayer about eternal life. The prayer is this. Father, give me a longing for eternal life. Give me a longing to be with you. Give me a longing that says, this world is not my home. And everything that breaks, may it point me to the fact that when I'm with you, things will not be broken but whole. Give me a longing for eternal life. That's what's embedded in this prayer. Eternal life is this. You want it. It's found where? That's our last two points. In knowing the Father and in knowing the Son. The next one is eternal life is knowing the Father. Now, this word know, I kind of teased it out that it can have a ton of layers. But it does mean that you know something intellectually. That your mind knows something. That God is who He says He is. And this is what it says right here. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Why did he put those? Only. Because there's one God. Only true one means he's the only real one. Although there will be many things that erect themselves as potential gods worthy of your worship and your praise. So the world says. But it's not true. There's one true God. I was reading a book, uh, reading again, a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. And here's a quote. As he sought to put words, which words fall so short to describe this one true God. To know God. Quote, What a broad world to roam in and what a sea to swim in is this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is eternal, which means He antedates time. It's before time existed and is wholly independent of it. Time began in Him and will end in Him. To it He pays no tribute and from it He suffers no change. He is immutable, which means that He has never changed and can never change in any smallest measure. 
To change, he would need to go from better to worse or from worse to better. He cannot do either for being perfect. He cannot become more perfect. And if he were to become less perfect, he would be less than God. Sit on that one a little bit. He's omniscient, which means that he knows in one free and effortless act all matter. All spirit, all relationships, all events. He has no past and he has no future. He just is. And none of the limiting and qualifying terms used of creatures can apply to him. Love and mercy and righteousness are his and holiness so ineffable that no comparisons or figures will avail to express it. And we could just keep talking about him. And our words will constantly fall short. But we are called to know this God. To know him. To set our mind upon him and to agree with what he says about himself. That is God. But the knowledge that is being spoken of here is not simply mental knowledge. It is not just knowing about. It is knowing relationally. It is, reno- it is knowing intimately. The Bible talks about it, uses tons of other language. Trust, belief, love. That is to know God, to love Him, to trust Him with your whole life. That is to know Him. Because to know about Him might just make you religious but it might not make you a follower of Jesus. There were tons of examples in the New Testament. Many of the Pharisees, they knew about Him. They knew about God and they could quote the Bible. And yet, of not just them, but several people who were doing things in His name, Jesus would say this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. He's getting at this is more than just knowing facts or doing good deeds. This is knowing intimately the love of God for you, and believing that Jesus is your only hope. And you might say, well, how do I know if I'm a follower of Jesus? Because I've had hard times and I've doubted. I've had difficult times and I've questioned Him. So does that mean I I don't know Him? Our hope is not in your perfect obedience. Or your perfect belief. Our hope is that you know you're a sinner and you trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's why we need to talk about the Son. That's why He didn't just say it's knowing God the Father, but it's also knowing the Son whom the Father has sent. You see that in the verse, verse 3? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the prayer there, before we dive into the Son, the prayer there is, Father, 
may nothing be more important than you. And may I spend my life singularly going after you. And so now we end with eternal life is knowing the Son. Eternal life is in knowing the Son. It's in knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Now, if you read this, you might feel a little bit disjointed. Like, does that mean the Father, God the Father is God, and God the Son is not? He's just a a good teacher or a messenger that's sent from God because it seems like it's kind of breaking him up. But if you've read through the entire book of John, you would realize that John has been laboring with all of his might to say just the opposite, that Jesus is God himself. And that when he calls himself the Son of God, he is equating himself with the Father. There are passages in the Scripture when he says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And when Jesus talked that way, they sought to arrest him. And then Jesus would say things like, I and the Father are one. And it says, and the Jews picked up stones to kill him. Because they knew what that meant. He was claiming to be God. And so either he's a liar or he's telling the truth. We know him to be telling the truth. And yet what we have here is we believe there is one God, three unique persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with a uniqueness to their personhood. But one singular God, not multiple gods. There is one true God. And if you say that doesn't make sense, I just want to say join the club. It's part of, if we could make sense of all that who God was, then He wouldn't be God, we would be. I take refuge in that. But that's how the Bible describes our great God. So we've talked about the Father, now we point to the Son. In the Son, there is eternal life. There's no more famous passage known by believers and unbelievers than John 3.16. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world, not just Jews, that was revolutionary, that He gave His only Son, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes this is another knowing word whoever trusts believes loves casts all their life at his feet whoever believes in him should not perish but have what eternal life this is eternal life that you know the father one true god and you know jesus christ the one whom the father has sent This verse talks about that. Jesus is the sent one. The ESV study Bible says there's few other things that are more common in the book of John to call Jesus than the one who is sent. He's the sent one. And that's what we see right here in verse 3. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You're like the one who sends you out. That's why it's so important at the end of John, we are called sent ones. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so now I send you. Go. Basically make disciples. But where does eternal life come? From that verse, from this verse in John 17, eternal life comes through a collision with Christ. You cannot have eternal life without Jesus. You can't just have 
this nebulous God, you have to have the God who made Himself known in His Son, Jesus Christ, with us in time, loving us for His name. And so, it says, John 16, 27, For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. Eternal life That is, the acceptance of God of you. God's love for you is given because you've loved Jesus. And you have believed that He is the one who has fulfilled all the promises made by the Father. That He's the Messiah. He's the perfect perfect suffering servant. That's what it means to know the Son. You love Him, and you believe that He came from the Father. And in so doing, you have eternal life. That is, you have the love of God for you. And so, how in the world, how in the world do we go from sinner who only wants for ourselves? We are most preeminent in our life to going to leveraging our lives, not so that we would be famous, but so that Jesus would be famous. Where does that, how does that happen? It's because of a collision with Christ. You have tasted and seen that He is good. You've heard His Word and you have believed. Believe that you cannot save yourself from sin and that He is your only hope. You have believed. You love Him. And there's this radical reorientation to your desires. What makes someone even consider rejecting the message of our world that we should live for ourselves? You do you for you. There's a billboard on I-40. Be confident in you. Why? Are you, I mean, there's something in you that's not in me. Confidence in me always ends up in the wrong spot. I've got to be confident in another. That's the hope of the Christian. What causes me to lose hope in me, besides reality, to lose hope in me and to say, all my chips are on Jesus? It is the gift of eternal life. It is a collision with Christ. It is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Hear this message. Believe on Him. You will be saved. And in that, He reorients you. Miracle of miracles when we say, all of my money is for Christ. I don't say I'm the center of my universe. I say I want to count others more significant than myself. I say my marriage, my parenting, my job, what I enjoy, my possessions, they're all for Jesus to make Him famous. And as imperfect as I am at that pursuit, that's the pursuit of my heart. Oh God, please reorient our lives to prize the sun. Do you know why the sun should be prized? Because he did what we couldn't do. That's verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Newsflash, you and I have not perfectly accomplished the work that he's given us to do. 
We have fallen short of His glory. The glory of the Son is that He did everything that He was asked to do perfectly, and in Him is no sin. And therefore, your and my hope of eternal life is not upon our ability to be perfect or better than our neighbor. It is, I lean everything upon the righteousness of Jesus. That's what's being described in verse 4. Jesus alone is the righteous one. And that's why 1 Peter 2, which... After this series, we're actually going to dive into 1 Peter, and then we'll do the life of David over the summer. 1 Peter chapter 2 describes Jesus this way. He committed no sin. That's why we trust Him. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. This is our Savior. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because it's only by His wounds that we are healed. The wounds of the perfect Son of God who did everything He was asked to do to stand in the place of those who did not do what they were asked to do. So in this verse 4, tips us off to another key of eternal life, and that is we must repent of sin. We must acknowledge the difference between Jesus and us. The Son is the only one that gets glory for doing all that the Father asks. Therefore, What is crucial in eternal life is to say that. I fall short. I can't save myself. I am a needy mess, broken and lost in my sin, and I need Jesus alone to stand in my place as the only hope that I have of my sin. It's our only hope. He's our only hope. And I was listening to Tim Keller, and he gave this illustration that I found very helpful in describing that last day of judgment when we stand before the Father, and that judgment that should be ours moment by moment because we continually fail Him. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What are the next four words? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's verse 4. He's the one who did everything the Father asked Him to do. And it's because He is righteous that He can plead with the Father and we have an advocate and we will be forgiven. And Tim Keller used this illustration. He said, I used to think that when Jesus was up there being our advocate, he was pleading for mercy. It might sound something like this. God, I know that you are perfect in all of your ways, and your law demands perfection. But now Jesus' advocacy, if it were merciful, might sound like this. But God, Father, couldn't you cut them a break? Life's been pretty hard for them. And there's a lot of things coming their way. So can't you just like cut them a break a little bit and give them eternal life and complete forgiveness? That's not how it works. He doesn't just like, sin's not a big deal. Life's really hard for you. Let's just keep it moving. That's not eternal life. It's not how you get it. 
The demand is perfection. What Jesus is pleading for is justice. He says, the law demands perfection. And the perfect is here. Jesus says, I have done everything you have asked. And the debt that those people have incurred, I have paid in full. And so not based upon mercy, but based upon justice, you must forgive them. Father, forgive them. Because if they are in the Son, the debt has been paid. Justice has been served. And we can be forgiven. That's what our Savior is pleading for. And because He is perfect, His prayers are always answered. And therefore, church, rest underneath that. That you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's your hope, not your righteousness. And not some sweeping under the rug of sin. But a just dealing of it in the Son of God who bore our sins in His body on the tree. By His wounds were healed. And He is our great advocate. And so, dear friends, we end our prayer with this. Father, thank You for Your Son who is our only hope and who is our Savior over sin. And so, Jesus ends with these last words, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. He's basically saying, Finish what we came to do. Finish this. Carry me to the cross. Raise me from the dead. And bring me back to be with you in glory. And so our prayer is this. Oh God, eternal life is to know you. Deepen. Broaden through prayer. Deepen my love for you. And may I experience a longing for eternal life that rivals and exceeds all other longings. And God, would you give me a love for the Father, and would you cause my heart to prize the Son. And may all of my hope be there. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I just ask, I ask that you would now take us, and you would now guide us. And as we take the Lord's Supper, I ask that it would be a moment where we, if we've never known Jesus, that although the Lord's Supper is not for those who have never known you, this time is to call out for Jesus to rescue and to save. Father, I ask that right now you would save people in this room. I ask that the pretending would be put aside. I ask that the religious accolades and the amount of times that have gone to church or amount of times open the Bible, that we would stop leaning on us and that, Father, right now would be a confession of sin and a desperate pleading that says, my only hope is Jesus. I love Him and I want to live for Him. Oh God, help me and save me. Father, I pray that that prayer would be prayed in this room or for some that who are listening. Father, I ask that You would save today. But for us who are Your children, oh God, I ask that You would cause our knowledge to just not stay at an intellectual level. That it would not just be one thing of knowing about you, but it would be a continual deepening of a relationship with you and sitting at your feet and accepting your invitation of prayer, oh God, so that we might know your heart and experience your love. Father, bless your people with your love today.